This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the fastest, the easiest, the most user-friendly and professional way to make your very own website, portfolio, blog, or online store. Mm. And if you go to squarespace.com slash thumbs, you can get a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch your website, use the offer code thumbs to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash thumbs for a free trial and the offer code thumbs for 10% off. It's May 2018. And this is not quite an episode of Idle Thumbs. I am Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jake. Uh, hey. We don't have another episode of the podcast for you this month, unfortunately, much to our shame. Um, yeah, as you may have heard, uh, Campo Santo, which is the studio uh, for which Jake and I both work, or worked, I should say, has become part of Valve. And so the two of us have moved up to Seattle, or at least are in the process of doing that. Uh, and then Nick also has announced his own new game studio, Final Final Games, uh, as he remains up in Vancouver. Uh, he's working on a new um, unannounced project, but is sort of getting that whole thing together. So uh, all of us have just had a lot going on, and we, I guess, we thought we would be able to get back on the podcasting wagon a lot faster than we, yeah we believed in ourselves uh but that belief was misplaced yeah, never believe it never believe in yourself you'll only disappoint yourselves and your and your readers that's yeah what i've learned <laughs> that's a pretty bleak takeaway all yeah. things considered chris yeah sorry uh so we decided to in yeah. its stead release the audio of a panel that i moderated at pax east last month about all kinds of different um, I guess different diverse communities in game development with a panel of people who are working in those communities or working to help them or, or just a- around that sphere in a variety of different ways on the development and publishing side of things. Um, so we figured we put that audio out on the feed for you to hopefully enjoy uh, as just a different, different kind of thing than what you usually get on the Idle Thumbs podcast. So hopefully you enjoy this extra content um, I thought it was pretty fun and interesting to participate in, and hopefully you find it those things to hear. Uh, and then we don't really have a specific time estimate for when we'll be back with regular podcasts, but I hope it doesn't take too long. Uh, I hope we can do it, get back on that, figure out that Patreon, get our podcast going again. Uh, hopefully that is a thing that happens in the near future. In the meantime, enjoy this panel. I will, Chris. Thanks, Jake. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, over there, we have Tanya Short. Uh, Tanya worked as a designer on AAA games like Age of Conan and The Secret World, uh, but is now the director of Kit Fox Games in Montreal, uh, which is currently developing Boyfriend Dungeon, a game where you date your <laughs> weapons, which is amazing. Um, we have Robin Hunicky who also actually moved from AAA to Indie, um, from working on games like The Sims 2 to games like The Incredible Journey. Journey, an incredible game, not <laughs> The Incredible Journey. Um, Robin Hunicky, uh now runs Phenomena, right. 
an independent game studio in San Francisco. Um, you recently released Luna, a VR game. Uh, here we have Nigel Lowry. Is that correct? That's very correct. Lowry. The uh, co-founder of Devolver Digital, an extremely interesting publisher, indie publisher, I would say, or publisher of indie games that works with developers from all around the world. It's a very unique and interesting company. Uh, we have Kelly Wallach, who runs Indie Megabooth, which is an incredibly awesome organization that showcases many, many games at different events all throughout the year, and who organized this very panel. Uh, and then finally, we have Edgar Serrano, the director of Lienzo Games in Chihuahua, Mexico. And you also recently released a game. Uh, it is extremely cool. The game is called Mulaka, sort of an action-adventure game about um, indig indigenous culture in Mexico. So those are our panelists, all extremely interesting people. Um, I am Chris Remo. I am a game designer and composer at Campo Santo. We're making a game called In the Valley of Gods, and we released a game called Firewatch a couple years ago. I am also a podcaster um, at Idle Thumbs, and you might be hearing this on the Idle Thumbs podcast feed uh, right now, which is a strange thing to be saying because I'm <laughs> looking at live human beings right in front of me <laughs> who are definitely not listening to this on a podcast. Um, so that's me. All right. Uh, I think I would like to do to get this started is to go through everyone on the panel here and have them sort of describe what you all see as the community who you serve, uh, who you make games with and for. Um, you can define that however you like. Um, I guess we can just start on the right with Tanya. Sure. Um, yeah, I actually primarily think of myself as a community person when it comes to my uh, night job, my, my volunteering. Oh, I didn't mention your other job. That's fine. That's it's, not a real, it's not a job. Well, I didn't <laughs> mention your other cool project. <laughs> yeah, no, in the evenings, um, I put in some time to Pixels, which is a feminist um, women in games collective uh, group. And we've recently also taken on um, other marginalized genders because they've been underserved in the community. But for our games, we're definitely following our hearts and what we think will, will serve lots of different gamers that maybe haven't had all the games to play that they wanted to play. So that's where Boyfriend Dungeon came from, for sure. Nice. <laughs> Robin. Uh, so I also have a second job. Um, I'm a professor uh, of arts, games, and playable media at UC Santa Cruz. So I teach there. I founded a program there, um, which is now in its fourth year. And um, in specific, in both founding phenomena and also the undergraduate major at UC Santa Cruz, I've been trying to bring more women and people of color into games and particularly uh, give people opportunities to uh, work in games and also uh, learn about games where they're learning both the technical component and the artistic component. So my background is in computer science. I start off in robotics and AI, um, and I kind of realized that if I kept doing what I was doing, I was going to be making drones, which, you know, probably kill people. <laughs> and I thought I should probably just do something way less, like, damaging to the universe, like just make some art games. <laughs> um, but in the process, I realized that a lot of the people that were surrounding me in computer science and engineering sort of environments didn't look like me and also didn't have my sensibilities. I was, was kind of like the weird art chick in those scenes. And so I've been really trying to build both with the program and also with my business a place where artists 
programmers can have a full, well-rounded life. So they can do like kind of like what you do, like do design and composition, or do composition and programming, making prototypes. So I'm really um, trying to expand the number of people that are making, and particularly that feel comfortable and competent with the computer, um, in addition to expressing like personal narrative or ideas about um, gameplay that might be boundary-breaking or like in their own ways, like challenging our perception of what games can be. Cool. Nigel. Um, I have one job. I'm not as I'm pretty, lazy. <laughs> pretty lazy. But um, in you that job, job, did you agree that I'm lazy? No. <laughs> God, no. Yes. You just met me. Um, you have apparently like 8 million developers you represent. Yeah, that's, so, I think that's yeah. the, the, the discussion, for, I guess, from my angle on this panel is um, twofold. One is the developers we work with from all over the world, from all different backgrounds. Um, and working with them to foster the communities for their games, um, which are also pretty diverse based on the kind of genre of game they are and, and um, the kind of community that builds around them. And then I think we kind of, you know, oftentimes shield them from some of the more toxic communities out there too. So we have kind of an interesting uh, interplay between um, different communities and how our developers uh, interact with them and how we work with them to make sure that they understand um, maybe the best approach to it. Cool. All right, Kelly. Yeah, um, so I also have a second job. <laughs> I get it, um, I get it. <laughs> I, I was the one who had one job, which is to know how to moderate this panel, and apparently I completely failed. I just that. wanted to join in everyone else. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, also so do the mega booth, and then I'm also chairman for the Independent Games Festival, which is an award ceremony at GDC each year. Um, we also help to co-organize an event in Kyoto called BitSummit, uh, which is an indie event um, based out of Japan. So I'd say like for all of the, I mean for the Mega Booth community it initially started off as like how do we get visibility to independent game developers and how do we get this out in front of fans and consumers in a way that um, is approachable and kind of would make sense I guess in a way. And so that's grown over the years and we really like the way that we do curation is we don't curate just for the games, we also curate for the companies. And what that means is like, are they doing something positive for the indie gaming community in general? Um, could they act as a mentor for younger developers? Can developers who participate be mentored by um, somebody who's been through the process a couple times? And over the last six years, we built up a community of close to like 800 companies that we've worked with. Um, and I think it's become a really kind of important support structure for a lot of people and it's given visibility to developers who might not be able to do it on their own. Um, we work really hard to be very like diverse and inclusive in the kinds of games and companies that we're presenting. And one of the reasons that we want to do that um, is so that they can learn and meet the connections and make the network, you know, networks that they need to so that they can go back to their communities um, and to bring back some of that information and some of those connections as well. Uh, for IGF, um, that's probably much broader. Um, that's kind of like representing like out into the kind of greater games industry, like what are indie games at the moment, like um, you know what's going on in the scene, and also serving kind of like the the indie community at large, um, as opposed to just like the mega booth community. Uh, and then for Bit Summit, that is helping to foster and grow the independent scene in Japan, um, which has its own kind of like variety of struggles. So throughout all that, I think we've worked with um, game studios and stuff in pretty much like every region and area of the world at this point. Um, so we kind of serve like I guess a global community. Cool. And Edgar. Uh, well, I'm the director and co-founder of Lienzo. It's a studio in Chihuahua, Mexico, and it's literally like in the middle of nowhere industry-wise. And uh, for us, it was 
a real like struggle to get into the gaming industry and instead of doing what all the other studios in Mexico had done up to us which is trying to emulate like an European or American studio because in Mexico we have something called uh, malinchismo which is when you hate on something being done in Mexico or if you see something that's Mexican made you automatically think that it's like low quality or like crappy or something like that so a lot of the creators uh, in Mexico based on that belief they create turning away from our roots and our like surroundings and stuff like that and that's why you don't see games from Mexico that look Mexican like the most Mexican game uh, maybe Guacamole is Canadian and, and uh, so I went uh, the other side and I did a blatantly Mexican game and it clicked and, 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 and now we're here and now we're like a like a lantern or representatives for Mexican game development because we're the first studio to be able to put a game on the three major uh, partners like Nintendo, Microsoft and, and Sony at the same time and it's only like our first game and there's other studios that have been at it for about like 10-15 years so now not overnight but over three years worth of nights uh, we're uh, at the forefront of the gaming industry in in Mexico so a lot of people are turning towards us to see what we're doing or what we did and spoiler we don't know and how <laughs> it has been successful so far and it's that and also fighting against a real very real taboo around video games in Mexico still like Mexico it's it's a real it's a big 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 country with a lot of like uh, Catholicism and taboo around like video games still so it's going against that and part of our like weapons for that is the indigenous theme in our games that actually like for your abuela or your mom in Mexico it's like oh it's video games but that's cultural so ah and then it short circuits and it, it ends up being okay so that's sort of what we're doing that's awesome so um because you just actually edgar mentioned some of the challenges that you faced um as a mexican developer from within mexico which which is certainly interesting and i, I think probably a lot of people would not be aware of that um you are, if I, don't, if I hope you don't mind me saying, you are, you are a very young-looking man. You uh, have a youthful appearance. Um, so you, this work, I mean, like, what I mean by that is you, you have not, this worked for you, right? I mean, you said it was like your first game, it worked out. What did you do? You just said you don't know, but you must know more than literally nothing. What did yeah. you do to sort of um, push back against these challenges? What did, you, what did you do to make your game work, to get it out there, to get people to, to know about it? I mean, it's, it's impressive. Well, uh, thank you, first of all. Uh, I know I look young. I'm actually 29, so I'm not yeah, that young, maybe? Depends on the crowd. But <laughs> I, would say, <laughs> I would say it's, it's because I look like 16 studio. or 17. Yeah, no, I would say 29 is pretty good for directing, <laughs> director of a game studio releasing a successful game. That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, I basically, we basically like found somebody that would fund us uh, our make-up-believe jobs, and that took about three years uh, of me it was a lot of persistence. It was, is it an English word? Persistence? Yeah. Perseverance? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. we call it hustle. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was knocking on a lot of doors and telling the pitch to a lot of people and framing the game differently 
for each individual maybe decision maker. Like for example, uh, there's this cultural branch of the government in Mexico, and they don't really care about a video game, that, but they do care about a cultural product. Or there's like the tourist agency in Mexico, and they don't really care about a video game, but they do care about something that puts uh, the Sierra, which is an ecotourist's like haven, in like consoles and stuff like that. So it was learning that along the way and telling the right people the thing they want to hear and then just being really patient because everybody told me that it was a good idea, but nobody gave me the money for it. <laughs> and, yeah, that's how it goes. And then uh, we got a bunch of like uh, notoriety because we launched a Kickstarter, which failed catastrophically. Mm. And, uh, but the media, like they wrote that we were already making the game instead of asking for money to uh -huh. make the game. And because of that, we got asked to speak at a bunch of events. And most of them, they didn't know that we hadn't made the game yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> and there were a couple of events that even when we were there about to speak, they found out that we hadn't made the game yet. Uh -huh. Because they saw like a, a bunch of like concept art and they're like, don't you have like a build? And I'm like, no, we haven't done anything. And, but that gave us a lot of validation for the project. And we actually got offers from incubators from LA, uh, Austin, and San Francisco. To, but I didn't want to leave because everybody leaves Chihuahua yeah, to yeah. do stuff. And I wanted to be like an, an, an outlet for people to yeah. grow and whatever. And that ultimately convinced our investor to be there. And that's the financial part, which is certainly the hardest one, but then it was also the matter of, okay, now we have the money, how do, how do we make, make games? Because nobody knew, uh, in our studio there were eight guys, and none of us studied to make games, because you can't do that in Mexico. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was like reading a lot, and like going online a lot, and uh, just finding out stuff by our own, and like building stuff, and realizing it's crappy and then building it again and eternally, you know. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. That, congratulations. Thank um, you. Thank you. That, I feel like that, that experience touches on two things that I think are relevant to this panel, one of which uh, is sort of being an ambassador for um, the community that you're serving and ex ex explicitly trying to do something that showcases um, a particular uh, group or culture or, um, you know, place you're from, anything like that. I think that's... I'm sure other people here could speak to that. The other thing is fake it till you make it, uh, which I feel like that's a really extreme and good example of that. Of Yeah, and, um, and I also, I'm sorry, but I, yeah. I talk to a lot of people in events like this one and people that I still look up to and that I thought that they had their shit together and, and in terms of like <laughs> game development. And no I, it was really surprising that most of my questions were answered by, dude, I don't know, just yeah. like try to do it and then you'll see. Yeah. I thought that there was this secret set of formulas of, of different game developer studios that could tell me this is the way to follow. And then I found out that it's different for each one and mm -hmm. you have to kind of like make a mix of everything. Yeah, so, yeah. worse. If, if somebody tells you that there's a specific way to do stuff to make money, just run the other way. <laughs> that person does not, they do not know. They have something to sell you. Yeah, they're trying to yeah. get you to, to do something that you shouldn't do. Or even if their advice is uh, in good faith, it may well be out of date by the time you hear it. The thing that they, the avenue they pursued may not even be applicable it's, anymore. It's so true. And, and not, to, not to harsh, but like I went to Steam Dev Days a couple years ago. <laughs> it was just like all these dudes on stage being like, yeah, this is how we got all rich. This is how we did all this stuff. And it's like, 
it's, it's just, it's survivor bias, you know? It's like, you mm -hmm. know, people think yeah. that, they, that they won by doing something, and chances are you just got lucky, you know? And it's great to be like, you should get lucky, but that's not really <laughs> great advice. It's not actionable. You know, it's not actionable, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, Have, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. Um, Nigel, I'm curious, when you hear Edgar talk about his experiences, how do you approach uh, dealing with teams from all over the world? I mean, I assume they require different kinds of deals, different kinds of situations, different, they face different challenges mm -hmm. in the opportunities that they have available to them. Uh, how, how do you think about all this stuff? Um, we, as you said, work with f folks from all over the world um, from different experience levels. And it's very, I mean, I guess the experience over, our experience over the past few years, I guess nine, 10 years now, has built us up to understand that we need, we need to work with the developer really early on to understand their capabilities. Um, their sensitivities, what they really do and don't understand about the world around them. Some people have never left where they're from. Um, and when they come to PAX East, it was the first time they've not just visited the United States, but they've left their country or the surrounding country. So um, language, um, understanding, you know, um, I guess what their expectations are when they visit Gamescom or um, PAX, something like PAX. Um, but I, I guess the better answer to your question is we, we spend a lot of time sitting down with that. We, we've learned that it's very important to sit down with the developer very early on, even before we sign the game um, and actually formally work with them, to make sure that they understand um, what they're asking for in a publisher and what they're asking for to kind of take that next commercial level. A lot of them have worked on um, game jam games or art. Uh, not, this is not a sound like a negative term, but like art games that they were really only for them or you know their friends, but to really step into a broader world and to step into the broader internet, if you will, and you know um, real life coming to a thing, something like a PAX, um, it can be a big shock to them, and we have to we have to I think we have a pretty we have a team from all over the world, and we have. Um, the ability to sit down with them and explain to them what to expect and um, and really try and be there for them. I, I always think about Ojiro uh, Fumoto, who did this game called Downwell. And he's grew up in New Zealand. He's of Japanese heritage, um, lives in Japan right now. But he came to PAX East three or four years ago, and he was a lone developer by himself. And we had to, you know, so we sat down for the first day. He was in the, in the, in the mega booth. Thank you, Kelly. Mm -hmm. And in, we sat down with him and uh, had to calm him down a little bit because he was very anxious, as you might imagine, and just talk him through what to expect. And you know, he was, despite speaking perfect English, because he grew up in New Zealand, um, he was still worried about talking to you know, yeah. native speakers, yeah. and, which was crazy to me. I was like, it almost struck me as odd. I mean, we have folks from um, Warsaw, folks from Croatia, that I would never, they probably have better grammar than I do based on their education. <laughs> and they're very nervous about, you know, things like localization. And I don't just mean just the language, but, you know, saying something and not saying something is offensive. We've had developers that have thrown out racial slurs by accident because they've seen it in music or heard it in music and seen it in movies. And they said it very loud. And I had to tackle one de developer and, like, pull and rip him away from a crowd because he didn't know that that was a racial slur. He just had heard it in... Uh, you know, entertainment. And so these are the kind of things that you, we had to, we've learned over time ourselves and, uh, you know, make sure we understand what they're used to, what, uh, and what their expectations of when they leave, um, you know, their sometimes local communities. And to Edgar's point, it's, I'm really excited when I see a game come in 
I'm sorry to keep talking, but I'm really <laughs> excited when a game comes in from a place that I don't traditionally see a game. I got a game sent in from a team in Angola, and I've never had a game from Angola, That's and awesome. I was really interested to see what they had to do. I don't think that it helps one way or another where you're from with us. We just want to see the game and talk to the developer, but it's awesome to see games come in from all over the world now where it's, you know, it's starting to really expand. You know, it's funny you reminded me I have a third job. Oh, God, I get it. <laughs> I, just, I just started running an event at GDC called Amplifying New Voices. It's in its third year. And uh, Megan Scavio, who used to be the queen of GDC and is now the queen of the AIS, <laughs> um, she and Carol Shaw and um, Angie Smets from Gorilla and Siobhan Reddy and a bunch of us got Those together during, yeah, during this sort of like, you know, the rough times a few years ago. And we were talking about this, this problem, which is that um, we knew that visibility was going to become something that people were sensitive to in the community um, and that more and more people from different parts of the world and different communities in particular were going to get asked to get up on stage and talk about their games, and particularly being given invites to GDC and stuff. But the problem is that a lot of times we invite those people without giving them the skills to cope with that situation. And this is exactly what happens. You know, you get up on stage or in a panel like this and instead of feeling comfortable speaking, we'll just retreat into a shell or get really nervous on camera camera, not know how to look at the audience or engage or even like use the mic, you know, they get. Th so what we do in that event is we bring them out to GDC, we pay for their hotel and their flights and their tickets, and then we give them a day of media training. Mm -hmm. It's like you apply, so you know, we accept 30 people a year right now, and it costs like $250,000 to run the event, which, you know, we all have to raise that money from various sponsors, but then they work with a mentor in a small group of six people, and we put them up on stage, and we film them, we uh, let them watch the film of themselves talking, and then we also give them a headshot and help them write a bio, and then we do press with them, we do mock interviews, where like, you know, we sit down in the front and they're up here, and then we ask them really hard questions, and just running them through one day of really basic media training, by the end of the day, they have so much more confidence about speaking in public and like speaking their like lived experience, um, it's really transformative, and then we just add them to a group. So, you know, now there's 90 people in the group, and then there'll be 120 people in the group. And the goal with the, with the program is to teach them so that they can go back to their communities wherever they are, whether they're in Africa or they're in, you know, the Middle East or they're somewhere, uh, you know, in Asia or Europe, and do the same thing with people that are local. Because all it takes is just, you know, an iPhone and a podium, like you can just do it in your kitchen. It does, it's not a difficult thing to do, but training people in that, in that way of being confident publicly speaking is, I think it's, a, it's part of our job as the people that ask them to come and be representative at, at events like this. It's a really interesting angle. I don't even know that that would have occurred to me necessarily. Yeah, it's um, a lot of emotional labor to be like yeah. the person on stage from South Africa, you know, or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's anxiety provoking. Um, I think related to that, I'd be interested to talk a bit about education generally. I mean, you know, I'd be happy to hear from anyone. I think in particular, uh, Tanya and Robin might have interesting um, thoughts on this. I mean, how do you get involved in, how, how do you reach out to the people who maybe are not as well served by game development currently? I mean, maybe they wouldn't have occurred to them that they could make games because they don't necessarily see themselves reflected uh, in the kind of like, average game developer as it's portrayed. Uh, how do you reach out to those people? How do you, how do you 
How do you do it? You, you flail around a lot, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you try to be highly visible. But um, something that we found is that although we started with university students, so Pixels started originally as um, just an incubator program, where for six weeks we would help women make their first game prototype from scratch. And they could make whatever game they wanted and whatever tools they wanted. It wasn't a class. It was just a six-week program where we would give you deadlines and peer pressure to do this thing you wanted to do. And we started by advertising at local universities, and that was great but we realized we wanted more kinds of people. Um, we didn't just want computer science majors. We wanted you know, costume designers and grandmothers and, and everybody. And, and we did end up with a, a lot of diverse passions. But a lot of that came from using a lot of different words to describe games. Mm -hmm. Like saying, make your first video game yeah. means a particular thing. Whereas if you say, make some interactive art, no <laughs> coding experience needed, that means something else. And somebody else will latch onto that. And so for us, a lot of it has been changing, thinking about, oh, we need to train up somebody. And it's been more, we need to show somebody um, that they would be welcome here. Because there's so many gamers out there, like everyone's a gamer now, right? Um, whether you're talking about the number of people or the amount of money they spend, it doesn't really matter. Like everyone plays games. And so really it's about showing that choreographer who plays, you know, Splatoon at night, mm -hmm. that she could also be making a game <laughs> prototype and it could just be for her and her friends as art or it could be a commercial uh, career change if she wanted it to be. Um, and we don't pressure them either way. We have a kind of an art side and a commercial side. Yeah. Um, but I think that that education, not just of the skills, but also of themselves, that they could be an interactive artist um, is, is part of the bridge. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I'm the first female game jammer on the planet Earth. Like, I was <laughs> at the very first game jam. I helped to organize the first game jam. And I actually was responsible for managing all the machines um, and put, making sure that Ottman's engine worked on them and stuff. And so I was kind of in a, like at a deep level really interested in the idea of making weird games and distributing them for free on the internet. And this is like in like 2000, 2001, way before there were distribution systems. Because unlike some people on the panel, I'm 45. <laughs> so I'm an old bitch. Um, but like, one of the things about being a game jammer that I was always excited about was the idea that, yeah, you can just make weird stuff. So like the, the first thing I actually made, a f the first full game I actually got made at a game jam, because I was always doing admin stuff, was um, just like a weird physical toy with a triangle that made spirograph lines in space. It was just like a physics toy that drew pretty pictures. And I mostly just wanted to see how many lines I could draw on screen before the frame rate would crap. Like I was just, I was just, you know, just trying stuff out. Out with the physics engine. And, um, you know, as I got older and started seeing game jams take off and helped with the global game jam and a lot of other jams that have happened in these groups, I started to realize that there was like a subculture in game jamming of sort of like the struggle, like you've got to like stay up all night and you've got to smell and like <laughs> it's going to be awful, but you're going to do it. And I didn't like that part. And I think one of the things that has been really great about Pixels and a lot of these other sort of slower movements is that they work like I actually work. Like as a game designer, I'm a very slow developer. I don't, it takes me years to come up with ideas and then years to make them and then they don't sell. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time making my art. 
Um, and I felt very self-conscious about it, like in the like mid 2000s and late 2000s, that like the, like oh maybe I've helped create this culture of like kind of soldiering forward and like suffering to make your games. But thankfully, there's a lot of people out there that have kind of course corrected for that. So now I think you can game jam at your own speed. So you can do like Ludum Dare, or you can you know you know you can do something like Pixels, which is like it doesn't even have to be a digital concept; it can be physical. So I'm really glad that we've gotten past that idea. And I think it's still, there's still some of that bias in the culture of computer science and engineering that, like, you know, you just got to fucking crunch and, like, it's going to suck, but then everyone will love it. And the chances are, like, you, A, you don't have to, and B, maybe they won't, so don't. <laughs> it might not be worth it. I think that getting rid of those mythologies is really important for expanding the culture. This episode is brought to you by Casper. Whoa. Mm-hmm. A mm. sleep brand, a brand of sleep products i guess uh <laughs> yep with not just mattresses but all kinds of all, all the things you need to sleep well every night pillows you know all the stuff uh and if you go to casper.com slash thumbs and use the offer code thumbs at checkout you'll get 50 dollars towards select mattresses at casper.com slash thumbs with the offer code thumbs they have three mattress models now mm. you may remember back when we talked about caster mattresses on this podcast years ago there was just just a casper mattress but, but now, now yeah like like the casper, casper mattresses themselves expanding from that tiny box <laughs> the casper mattress line itself has expanded yes that's exactly right there is the original casper the wave and the essential all three of these tailored to whatever your whatever your mattress needs are. They're all breathable, so you can sleep cool, keep a good temperature. And as Jake alluded, they all come in a little box that the mattress explodes out of with free shipping and returns in the United States of America and also Canada. Good. I don't know what that implication was. That it didn't mean anything, what I just said. <laughs> Other than where the cast... Of course, we all understand the implication. Yeah, we all understand I guess the you implication. Do. Uh, well, my much more important implication, is actually less of an implication and more of an exhortation, is to head over to casper.com slash thumbs with the offer code thumbs at checkout for $50 off your mattress purchase. $50 off. Select mattresses. Mm-hmm. And you are completely confident in your purchase because of the 100-night risk-free trial. So uh, where do I go again for all this, Chris? Uh, I think you'll find casper.com slash thumbs is where you want to go. And then thumbs is what you want to type in as an offer code at checkout for mm. $50 off your mattress purchase. Nice. I'll type that into my computer. Good. That's what you should do. That's where you should type it into. Okay, good. And then and then I'll get a mattress and some other bed accessories and enjoy them. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Good. Great. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Ooh. The <laughs> fastest, easiest, most user-friendly, supported, and professional way to make your very own website, portfolio, blog, or online store. And if you go to squarespace.com slash thumbs, you can get a free trial and then 
When you're ready to launch that website, use the offer code THUMBS to save 10% off your website or domain. Uh, when you do, go to squarespace.com thumbs and get your free trial. That will actually allow you to make your entire website. It's not a limited kind of preview thing. It is actually the entire website maker. So you can uh, actually ensure that you're doing all the stuff you want to do. And then when you are done, enter that offer code thumbs, get that 10% off. And then you have a whole website and it works on all the mo phones and mobile things and tablets and big computers and the small ones, I guess, and all the different things. And it'll look great with good templates and you'll like it. Chris, I really like I really like the cadence that you employ inside of these ads, and I think that oh, actually, yeah, I think that a, a great Squarespace site would uh, would be an archive of all of your Squarespace ads, but maybe with some uh, with some rhythmic percussion behind them in the style of the of the sort <laughs> of of the like the Pepe Silvia with drums video. Yeah, uh -huh. a great video, but just mm -hmm. imagine You'd better link to that so people know what you're talking about. Uh, I will. Yeah, uh, yeah, I that think... is a good Squarespace site. That would be, I guess, a portfolio. It would be a portfolio a Squarespace yeah. site. It could, it could be a blog. It could just be once a week Chris's Squarespace ad is, is percussed. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, you could make a blog out of that. That would be a... So you, that's a pretty like self-referential thing because it's all actually Squarespace ads. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you if it's an effective website, people would keep signing up for Squarespace to make new sites based on that and then we would keep getting ads for squarespace on our podcast yes thus allowing that site to con i think you've discovered a perpetual motion ad machine yeah i think that's true so if if you're listening uh person who wants to keep us supported uh, with drums please make this website <laughs> good uh you could make that website by going to squarespace.com slash thumbs Making this whole Pepe Sylvia esque uh, weird Squarespace referential ad thing, and then when you're ready to publish it live to the world, you can do so by putting in the offer code thumbs and getting ten percent off that purchase. And you can do you can get your domain name through this, your website, all the stuff, uh, all goes through it. So ten percent off with the offer code thumbs. I mean, you could also make a website about like something you actually care about, and not something. That yeah, you could actually make a website about ad. something worthwhile and uh, specific to you. But also, you could do the thing Jake said. Yeah. Either way, it's fine. Whatever. One of those two things is fine. Mm -hmm. I think there's something that is certainly visible right now, which is sort of strange in games, which is that it's often portrayed as kind of a monoculture, and I think. There are a lot of people who are sort of invested in portraying it as such, but by the same token, or the other side of the coin, I should say, games are in some ways a lot less centralized than a lot of forms of entertainment, certainly compared to a field like uh, film, where Hollywood is this like incredibly dominating force to uh, the exclusion of almost everything else uh, in terms of sucking up all the air in the room. Um, games actually kind of have less of that stigma. They're kind of more international on the development side in a lot of ways. Um, there's less of those divisions, uh, and I, it's really evident when you um, come to an event like this and you go to something like Indie Mega Booth. Um, you know, you look at the games published by Devolver. Um, I don't know, Kelly. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you you've worked with so many developers over the years. Are there any? Um, do you feel like you're kind of working against maybe some of the 
outdated perceptions of games and, and yeah. yeah, trying to kind of push back <laughs> against that. I mean, I assume it can be a struggle at times, but also probably pretty rewarding. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that like the point actually that you were making about the you know there's not really like Hollywood or um, you know like this one kind of like monolithic place where video games are made is something that when we were doing the panel prep, yeah, Nigel and I were both like, wow, I hadn't actually even really thought of that before. Um, and like uh, you were saying, you know, Guacamelee is a Canadian game. Um, there's uh, on the panel that we did that those, the same panel last year. Um, a lot of the teams like from South Africa or from Australia or from outside of the US, they actually parody the US and then sell it back to us. And like, <laughs> it's games that you don't even really like think of, you know? Um, and so there's, you know, it kind of doesn't matter so much where the game is coming from as long as it's like connecting with an audience. And so it does make the games kind of like, you know, I guess really like global and um, able to appeal to like wide audiences as far as like, stuff that we um, curate and the kind of struggle, I guess, that we have with like a perception of, of games is like, first off, there's definitely a lot of like, um, you know, pre preconceived notions about like who plays video games and what kind of games are going to sell and what audiences they can reach. Um, and you have whole groups of people that are like, oh, I don't play video games. And it's like, well, do you play stuff on your phone? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I play this while I'm commuting all the time. Um, or you have women that play games, but they don't tell people that they play games because they don't want to be drilled about like, well, do you play this game? Do you like this thing? It's kind of like, oh, I like this band. It's like, oh, do you really? Like, do you know everyone who sang in it? Like, do you know all their albums? You know, like, so it can feel very like gatekeepy in a way. And I think that indie games have less of that. And the, the community around indie games is really like open and diverse. And it, it is like more like play and art and creativeness. Um, but then on the other side, it can be really like alienating because it can be like, you know, you accidentally walked into a museum of modern art and you've never looked at that kind of stuff before. And so you're like walking in and you're like, what in the world am I looking at? Like it's a giant nail in the middle of a room and you're just like, I don't know, I don't get what's <laughs> happening here. Um, and so you can accidentally alienate audiences that way. So like when we were first starting, uh, we were getting tons and tons of very artistic indie games. Um, and when we were curate for something like PAX, when we were first starting out for it, you can't just like have a room full of that stuff because it will turn off a general audience. Like they'll just walk by and be confused. Um, so what we did is we kind of slowly started integrating that over multiple show cycles. And so we would have like one or two kind of like really weird things, and we'd like put them in a back corner somewhere. So you kind of had to like go through the flow of all the games. And you're like, all right, all right, I get it, I get it, I feel comfortable. And then you're like, oh, now I'm in a tent like laying on some pillows doing this <laughs> VR thing that's supposed to simulate me taking acid in the desert somewhere. And then you walk back out and you're like, whoa. Um, but we like kind of gently guided you to that. We didn't just like throw you into it in the first place. Um, and now that I think like audiences are more used to seeing that stuff, especially at a place like PAX, we can do a little more kind of like weird stuff. Um, and even generally like for the IGF, one of the things that um, I'm really proud that um, that I added into the IGF is the All Control um, Award, which is uh, there's mm -hmm. a showcase called All Control GDC, and it's for alternative um, hardware, which is something that I just think is great. Like I grew up going to arcades. I love like physical controllers and physical toys, and like the mix um, between that and digital. And there's a really cool movement around that, and there's a lot of people that really love doing that kind of stuff. Um, and so the showcase was really popular at GDC, and we added an award to the IGF um, ceremony that celebrates that, um, which I think is really great. And so I think that stuff like that, especially as like everything in our lives gets more and more digital, I think the idea of going to like, yeah, being able to play something physical or being able to experiment with that is like is fun for the developer and fun for people to come look at as well. Um, so we kind of like try to like. I guess like guide and like gently kind of push people into like, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. There are other games. <laughs> yeah, we make a point to really push 
like where the developer's from um, and a lot of the, the efforts that we do because we think that's important for people to understand. When they see it, there's a game we, we uh, were part of called Broforce. It was a crazy kind of 2D, chaotic uh, shooter, side-scrolling shooter sim similar to Contra, but it had a lot of mm -hmm. um, a, a kind of uh, American machismo spoofs on forcing democracy down people's throats through, you know, weapons grade, everything. <laughs> and, uh, but it's made by a South African team. And you know, people kind of assumed it was an American team doing an American thing, being an American publisher. And it, you realize um, that I think that a lot of people can, the way they consume the game is they purchase it through Steam, or it comes from Microsoft, yeah. or uh, just you know, the, the, the media that they consume, they see it, they always kind of sometimes like a Hollywood film, or, or not even a Hollywood, just a film, assume that it was made in the United States because it's in English and you know, it's about American. But it, when we go out there and we realize that where these games are really from, we want to make sure people know that um, because we see a lot of things come in. I think everyone on the panel sees, you know, based on their jobs or their second or third jobs, come in and <laughs> see games from all over the world. And some of the most creative things are happening in places you didn't expect games from. Yeah. Um, and so it's really, I think it's going to be a, it's kind of a cultural shift that's going to have to happen where people start to care more where these things came from and who made them rather than just consuming them and, you know, moving on or arguing about them. And I think, uh, you know, people are doing a really good job, whether it's any mega booth or the developers themselves making sure that they, they push um, their scene, their own personal scene. Like Edgar pointed out, it's like staying in Chihuahua, correct? Yes. Yeah, stay. <laughs> staying there and, and making it from there. The, 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 we've seen teams from Poland really proud of their Gamescom booth that's, that's built entirely on the Polish community, or they'll do it here at PAX too. And it's, um, I think people are taking more pride that they, the, the games were made there and don't hide behind the fact that maybe that they don't speak English perfectly or, mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, are, br are bringing subjects that are not, you know, white straight men shooting guns at other white straight men. Yeah. And so it's really cool to see that happening. And I think it's just going to take a little bit of time for that to be more pervasive in it's, the adult industry. It's also really important right now. So I, I curate a thing called Experimental Gameplay Workshop at GDC. And we show about 20 really weird games. Like, we do the opposite of what Kelly was talking about. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> pick the weirdest things we can find. And one of the games that we had this year was a Feng Shui game. And uh, the developers were from South America. And they couldn't actually get a visa to come to the States and talk about their game. Um, and we had a really hard time with that this year. There were several developers from other places that we couldn't get across the border. And so another thing that we can do at, you know, at the Mega Booth and Devolver, you know, at things like GDC, um, is we can be a bridge for those people by, um, we, for example, have extended the deadline um, for EGW this year. We've just left the door open so that pe people can submit really early so that we can work on getting them letters so that we can get them across the border and in to the conference. And it's kind of like, if, if you work on a game like that and you get noticed, I mean, a feng shui game is like a really interesting concept. And it's a beautiful, quiet game. It's just two guys. But because they couldn't come to GDC, they couldn't do business development. You know, they couldn't meet the people that maybe would give them the money. So when they made their video, we encouraged them to put a pitch at the back end of it. So when they showed it on stage, it was like they were asking, hey, by the way, since we're not there, if you want to fund this, give us money. So we, we create those bridges for people to come across. And I think it's important to use the power that we do have to make them, you know, more visible. It definitely seems like whether it's business or surviving the internet, like really being a human and really showing yeah. the human behind the game yeah. helps kind of inoculate 
against some antibody. <laughs> it's like anything. It's, if it's you're anonymous on the internet, it's easy everyone to just throw stuff against at each other. But when you have to say it to somebody's face or they're there, yeah, it you know it, it adds a dimension um, that most people don't account for. I mean, that's that that whole that's a whole. Area that Let's talk about the internet. <laughs> Let's fix the internet. Close the door. Let's sorry, fix the internet. Sorry, sorry. Let's not say we did. No, no. I mean, it's. I think it's interesting to to touch on maybe a bit. I mean, certainly, one of the realities of the internet in the modern world is that it connects people like nothing else ever has, and that that can be really incredible for for different communities because it can actually you know, expose those communities to the world in a really positive way, but it can also open people up to abuse and challenges of all kinds. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious if people on the panel have any, I'm sure everyone here has experience with that in some form or fashion, it's hard not to these days, but I'm wondering if anyone has any thoughts on how to, um, I don't know, how to, how to deal with it, how to improve on it. I mean, I feel like this is the existential crisis we're all just living Drink with more all wine. day long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just, I'll chime in sort of quickly yeah, on this, please. but I actually, um, I gave a talk at GDC, I guess it was like two years kind of about this, about like um, community building in general. And like one of the things that I think was incredibly important looking back at it when we were starting the mega booth as a community is that we had a very strong foundation um, meaning that like the people that we had included in early on, um, like I said, are doing something positive for the community. There are people that basically we wanted to work with. Like when I first had started up the Mega Booth, like one of my things was like I don't want to work with assholes. <laughs> and so That's a good, I was good like, plan. now that yeah, now that it's my thing and it's my company, like I can do that and I can decide like who I work with and who I spend my time with. Um, and once you have a really strong foundation that you've kind of like you know, tightly selected for the types of people that you want to be around and the types of people that, and the types of attitudes that you want to have, as that community grows, it becomes self-moderating in a way. And so, like, then, it, you know, certain kinds of uh, behavior or certain kinds of, like, actions aren't really tolerated. But then on the other hand, like, the positive things are also very much encouraged. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's the turtle versus the rabbit kind of thing. Like, it's very slow and steady, and it takes a long time to do that, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. But then, in the long run, it's way more beneficial because now our community is, like, amazing. You know, like, all of our volunteers are great, our fans are great, the developers are great. Um, and then you look at something like, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, I'll just say it anyways, like a community around like Twitch or something like that or stuff that you see on Twitter and it's like, you know, it suddenly gets out of control and then people are like, oh shit, we need a code of conduct. Like, it's basically like, let's slap some paint on this really like cracked, broken, waterlogged foundation. You know, like, it, you can't really do it that way because you start alienating the community that you already had mm -hmm. and then nobody who isn't part of that community is going to join it because they're like, oh my god, look at that. Like, I'm not going to even touch it. Um, and so I, I really think like very smartly building the community from the foundation up is like the way that you kind of start to yeah counteract a lot of the, the negativity that you that you see online and just let the negative communities be the negative communities and have them somewhere else and then start the communities that you want to see and that like you know and encourage the type of actions that you want to encourage through the types of people that you associate yourself with um, so uh, in our case it was something like that uh, it was again inadvertently uh, almost anything else I'll say here, I didn't mean to do it that way. It just came out good. But uh, what happened with, with specifically with Mulaka is that uh, the moment we started getting like haters, like comments and stuff like that, we're like, dude, we're making it. Like people are talking badly about this game. <laughs> That's like a, a big studio problem. And uh, to our surprise, uh, a lot of the same community 
was like standing up for the game. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't have to chime in at all. And, and, and that was like the best medicine. It was like inoculated from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so when people like told us, oh, do you know what they said about you in this channel or in that channel? And by the moment we got to it, it already had like 60 something replies, like batching the guy, just like, oh, dude, you're being an asshole and this is a good game and whatnot. And I think that we managed to be that way because Uh, since we started making the game, we were like all for like positive uh, things and speaking about like game development as a like positive experience. And since Mulaka is not really like, for example, uh, I don't know if you have to do something like uh, something really competitive, you have to show an image of something like being more more aggressive or like sharing stuff that's more uh, on the nose and stuff like that. And for us, it wasn't like that because the genre of, of our game and the theme, uh, it lent itself to give more stuff or to produce more content uh, like PG, you know. And I f feel that that spoke well for everybody. Like everybody uh, felt and knew from the get-go that we were just some guys that were trying to make a game and trying to get a foot in a giant industry that's not anywhere in Mexico. And that was the, the main thing that people uh, stand up for for us. Like people, when, when they defend us, they're like, dude, they're just starting out and, and it, it's good anyway and, and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I found that that's like the best cure for everything. If you can manage to get your people, your fans or your whatnot, uh, standing up for your game, then you don't have to like dirty your hands in a sense and you just kind of like moderate. Uh, it doesn't get out of control. I think that's a great point. I think I think that if you don't define uh, the terms of your community early on by example, um, it'll get defined for you. You know, I mean, I think once you can establish a community that is sort of self-regulating, then that that becomes self-perpetuating. Uh, yeah. The people will kind of do that work for you, and if you give back to them and make it feel like you're making something cool for them. Um, it's a well, very uh, symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and like in the, to your point, you know, if you don't define it and someone else will define it for you, the person who defines it for you will be the loudest person in the room. Yeah. You know, and, and it's true. Like there's tons of mailing lists and chat rooms and communities that die because one person is just the, it's the vocal minority, right? It's the person who is just the loudest that everybody just kind of gives up. And it's like, why should I participate if this person has the answer to everything already? Um, and it really sure. shuts down other kinds of conversations. And so like being really careful to identify like who those people are in the community and kind of temper them and make sure that other people feel welcome. Um, you know, that's, that's really like the, the key, I think, to making sure that like the community doesn't get defined by just some random person that just cares very, very much about it. Yeah. And for us, there's definitely like a local component and a global component for both KitFox and Pixels, actually. Um, so for KitFox, KitFox couldn't, or, and Pixels couldn't have existed without a fairly strong local community of people who trusted each other and wanted to work together, at least in the short term. Um, and luckily that worked out, but also having a, the ability to have global outreach and global sales. Like KitFox, we rely on sales in Germany and China and Japan, and like that's what lets me pay my rent. <laughs> um, but at the same time, having that, that local support group is also really important for the developers to really feel like, like we are people and we should have this lifestyle. Yeah. Also memes. 
Look, memes are like the really big for us. And I, I'm saying that because we have to be sensible to the like American memes and Mexican memes that are like really different. And huh. we have to know them both well, you know, because wow. that's like that's like the vocabulary of the internet now. And yeah. uh, if you know them well and if you know like, oh, this is Discord and this is Slack and you don't look like out of the picture, you know. And the way you get to that is that you have to have a very diverse group in your studio. Like, for example, yeah, we're diverse because we're Mexican, but also within our studio, there's a guy that still plays like last gen stuff all the time. <laughs> and there's like two PC gamers exclusively, and then the rest of us like play on every console. And then, so we have like different, um, like different tastes, of course, but that gives us a perspective on different stuff. So whenever, when it's really common in our studio that something pops up like a meme, and like, dude, I don't get this. And it's always better to have somebody that gets it instead of like researching, like know your meme and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> that's, that's actually an incredible point. That's such a funny, weird, interesting thing because really, I mean, ultimately, the, the more fundamental thing that you're saying is sort of, it's like grassroots marketing in a way. I mean, it's like under, you know, community management, marketing, PR. It's like you have to actually understand the people you're, not just yourselves, but the people who are going to play your game and experience it and be excited about it. And yeah, you're right. I mean, memes are the vocabulary of the internet. Oh my God, memes You need are to know what Drake likes and doesn't <laughs> like. That's important. Um, so we're getting close to, to wrapping this up. I want to leave some time for, for questions. But um, before that, I would be curious to just go through um, the panelists and kind of get a sense of your um, what you see coming down the line. I mean, if you think the direction of travel and your community and the challenges you face are, is it heading in a good direction? What are your hopes from the future? And um, if you have any closing thoughts or advice for people who are fostering their own communities, mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear those as well. Um, answer as many of those as you like. You don't have to answer literally every single point. That's a lot, that that's I a lot I know, to yeah, talk sorry. about. Please. Take, so take I'll talk for the next hour. <laughs> Um, I will say that Montreal is in an interesting inflection point right now because um, the group that was holding a lot of different aspects of the community together for many years has recently officially closed down. That doesn't mean that anyone has actually stopped doing community organizing or making games or anything like that, um, but they have kind of fractured into their own passions. And so it'll be interesting over the next few years to see how that develops because some of them are Francophone, some of them are Anglophone, and this was one of the few organizations where people kind of mixed, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, for for advice for potential future community organizers, don't do it alone. Yeah. I can't say that enough. I see a lot of people, they get this passion, they get this fire, and they get this excitement, and they go and they try to do something, and then their fire runs out and they stop, and they're like, well, I don't know what happened. I guess there wasn't any community there. Yeah. And honestly, if you have to have somebody else carrying that bucket sometimes, um, you can't do it all alone, and you can't do it all at once. You have to be super patient. It's going to take years. Changing culture sometimes doesn't work at all. <laughs> but if it's going to work, it's going to take some time. Yeah. So being able to wait that out with someone uh, is very, very important. So that's my number one uh, hope for the future is that everyone becomes more patient yeah. and more collaborative, I guess. <laughs> I was just going to say, a, a colleague of mine, Susanna Ruiz, at, at school said something to the effect of liberatory and ethical practices are rarely efficient and that they require so much extra weight behind them to even make a small amount of progress. Um, I do a lot of organization in San Francisco. I run a group called SF Indies, which is really inclusive. Um, to Kelly's point, what we did was we made it a word-of-mouth organization, and uh, we meet, you know, once a month-ish, 
maybe once every other month, depending on um, how busy we all are with our games. But the main point of that group was that we just don't get together to talk about games. We get together to talk about anything but games. So the whole point is that we get together, and we, it isn't just drinking. You know, that's another thing. A lot of people do drink ups, and then that excludes certain people. So we often do things like let's just go to Bernal Heights and fly kites, or like let's go to an art museum or walk around the, you know, the California Exploratorium, stuff like that. Picnics. Like, yeah, just picnics and just chilling out. Um, I think building a community, whether it's um, a community like that, like SF Indies, or working on game jams, or experimental gameplay workshop, or ANV, um, or even the program that I run, like all those, all those things have a common center, which is that yeah, I rely on talented individuals who are like-minded to help me when I run out of steam because I do a lot, and also. Um, the goal is to be flexible and expansive. It's not to solve a problem. It's not like, well, SF Indies is just going to make making, game develop, making games in San Francisco affordable because that's impossible. <laughs> it's literally impossible. Yeah. But, um, but it is to provide a space for people that feel like they're not really able to thrive, an opportunity to discuss that and have a, you know, a safe space <laughs> conversation about, um, about what it really means to be a lone developer working on a game that's going to take you five years to make. You know, like if someone like, you know, Jonathan or, you know, John Blow shows up, they have a huge impact on the lives of the younger developers there who are like, oh my god, you did it. And they say exactly what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, you know, I was just faking it. Um, so I think really not trying to solve a problem, but rather to create an environment where people can be honest and vulnerable is more important. Um, it is difficult to be vulnerable because, yeah, it's, it's easier to just say, yeah, no, I've got to figure it out. But most of us don't. And I think if, we, if we're all honest about that, then it's easier for us to connect and do, do, do small changes that lead to the big change. Um, when we're thinking about this panel, one of the things I was speaking to my wife about it, and something from my history outside of games kind of cropped up because we were talking about how well, this internet toxicity and, and, and all these kind of negative things we talk about and how can we fix these, how can we fix these right now? And one of the things that we were talking about is prior to video games, I worked in advertising, and one of the ad accounts I was on was the Texas Department of Public Safety, which was so badass to work on. Um, but one of the things we did was seatbelts. Seatbelt, um, getting people to wear their seatbelts. Like that click it and ticket things. So anyways, but the, 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 the funny thing in the research was since like 1969, it started at like 50% or something like that seatbelt rate. And right now it's like 97.8. And our goal with this $3 million in funding was to move it like 0.02%, right? Yeah. Like something really small. And we did all this research, or we looked at the research, and we had to have pitched the new campaign. And the point we really got to is, it doesn't, this advertising doesn't fucking really matter. Because it's a generational thing. And over time, once people had over time learned it, yes, this is how we should probably operate as a society. It basically, old people that didn't buckle their seatbelt were primarily people that didn't buckle their seatbelt. That was basically it. And we're not going to change their minds. And they got to die off. So I'm not saying we're waiting for. It's, that was the that was like the actual math there. Like it was crazy. But I'm not hoping that the people that are toxic on the internet all have to die off for us to be fixed. But the point is, is to not get hopeless about it. I think because it just things take time, and people have to be exposed to what the other panelists are doing um, uh, in a lot of the activities, and you know what we're all trying to push out there. And uh, it just takes a little bit of time for people to come around, and it's, it's not going to be a dramatic shift right away. So I guess m my point is, don't lose hope. Buckle your safety belt. All right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that reminds me of a saying I've been hearing a lot lately, is it's, it's a process, not an event. Yeah. And so, mm. yeah, you know, things take a long time. I think, yeah, my, my kind of hope for 
you know, the future, um, which is very grandiose. Yeah, is that I think we all start seeing each other as people. You know, I think the internet, because it's anonymous and because it's turned into whatever it is now, um, it can be very like disheartening and just think that like everything in the world is awful and everything is bad. But the thing is, you're being exposed to the vocal minority. You're being exposed to a very, very loud version of information that just used to come through like a newspaper, and you would read it maybe once a day, or you'd hear about something once a month. Um, and now you're seeing it like every day and it's very high def and it's coming at like a super, super high rate. Um, and people are really not capable of taking in that volume of information from the volume of people that we're hearing it from. Um, and you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole world is like falling apart, but it does mean that the people that want to do good, you know, need to be making a concerted effort to do it. And I think that like, yeah, that just, that takes time. And I think, I really, really feel that like games is a good place to start on that work and it's a good place to make this happen because it teaches like it teaches people the language of the future which is programming technology and it teaches um, it teaches so much and it gives people so many tools um, to be able to move forward and make big changes in the world and it starts off through like through play and through fun and through joy and through connecting people with each other um, and so you know if we can change the culture within this I think that it can propagate out into a lot of different places um, and you know a lot of games culture and stuff lives on the internet where I think a lot of these conversations are happening so that's kind of my my hope for the future is that we get more people understanding that like they can create they can be welcome um, and they can help to make these changes that we all want to see awesome yeah can I can I comment real quick because I agree yeah. and I think being at Penny Arcade um, I feel like a lot of people have seen the famous Penny Arcade like internet fuckwad theory of mm -hmm. like it's in anonymity that turns yeah. people into monsters and I've, I've lately decided I do not believe that I think it's actually anonymity combined with everyone tolerating that kind of behavior yeah. Yeah. that's what actually yeah. makes it happen yeah so yeah. yeah like even if we're anonymous we can all still be nice to each other if we want to yeah, you just have to Wow. Well said, yeah. Uh, well, for our future in Mexico, that's a loaded question, but um, I've always said since I started with the idea of Mulaka that I feel and I believe firmly that as there are a lot of like a, a lot of following behind cultures like the samurais or the ninjas or the Maoris or the Apaches, and most of those cultures are dead. There's a lot of cultures that have that same thing that you can like do that effect upon. So we have our own, like for example, the Taromaras in Mulaca, we have our own ninjas and people are not like looking at them because I believe it's naive to expect to people just to pay attention to different things if you don't present those things in a format that they're gonna like. And we're all convinced that video games are the best medium to communicate any message, any story. And we want to be able to lead by example of saying like, you're making great things, make them uh, like pulling from your surroundings. And that's the way we're gonna connect the world. The world. If not, then all the world's gonna be America, or all the world's gonna be Europe, or all the world's gonna be Ubisoft, you know, mm -hmm. God forbid. <laughs> and, uh, and still, um, that's the way that I became, in, again, inadvertently, an advocate for change. Because now people are asking me, like, what do you do and what can we do to change and stuff like that? And it's just to keep uh, pushing for that, like, global thing of we're going to have games 
through positivity and cultural aspects and pulling from good stuff, uh, propagate good, good culture. And of course, we're not going to change the world, but, but at the end of the day or your life, you're able to change like 15 people, then that's enough because that's how you expand. And that's what we want to do in, in, in Lianzo, to be able to inspire and people outside from the US or people outside from like Canada or people that don't have this possibility to be in this type of events, they can see us and they're like, okay, if they did it, I mean, maybe I can do it too. And also like be really open because a lot of people feel they're like awkward and they don't want to talk about it and they're like ashamed of like, oh, I want to do a game and this is all I do, like shitty drawings and stuff like that. <laughs> and like that's also how we lead by the example of we didn't know anything about games about three years ago and like look at us now. Yeah. And it's, I, we don't believe in talent in, in Lienzo. We believe in like hard work. Like we believe that you don't get born, you don't like be born with like talent and stuff. You just work at it and get good through working at it. It's not like, oh yeah, I was like raised with this magic thing. No, I, I worked my ass off and that's how I got it. But like with practice, you know, and, and ego dissolving because ego kills studios. And yeah, yeah I, I feel I talked a lot and didn't say anything, but basically that. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Well, uh, I wonder if we can squeeze like a question in here. We're running up against it, but let's, uh, there's, a mic there. there's a mic up there if you want to approach it. <laughs> oh, everyone's so nice. Everyone's being too courteous. Everyone's so nice courteous. Nice Canadian standoff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, hello. My hello. name is Julian. Um, I sort of want to touch on something, a combination of sort of two things that both Kelly and Nigel brought up uh, earlier, which is one, fostering like a good foundation for a community, and two, shielding developers from sort of that toxicity of the internet, because as we know, <laughs> Twitter and Twitch and YouTube comments are, are sort of hives of racism and sexism and sort of how do you deal with that uh, you know, branching out into um, trying to get developers, say like Edgar, um, from various types of cultures and shield them from sort of that. And to answer it quickly, because I know we're out of time, but um, that's we're all up here talking about building bridges, diving into it, being active. Not everybody wants that. There's the people we work with that have no interest. They, they want bridges to be built, but they also don't want to have to engage with communities because yeah. they're introverts or they just have no, you know, they're happy with their social circles, which is totally fine. So a lot of what we do sometimes is as a, as a publisher, as a business partner, we will go to those communities or handle those type of requests or support things for them because, you know, mentally that could be crushing to them otherwise. They don't want to have to deal with that. They have enough to worry about. They have an evil publisher on their neck, right? So um, there's, there's something to be said. I guess the point is, you know, without getting into too much, there's something to be said that this isn't for everybody. And, and if someone doesn't want to be part of a community, it doesn't mean because they disagree with your community. It's maybe they're just... Um, don't want to engage in a certain social, social aspect. And you have to kind of understand that as well as, as important. Yeah, it's only very recently in human history that every person was expected to be a public figure on some level, which yeah. is a very strange and probably psychically unhealthy thing that we shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't take for granted, definitely. Yeah. 
Oh, um, I was going to say, uh, to quickly chime in on that part, I just, I'm one of those people who doesn't actually really like that. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, so, I I'm, just... yeah, basically, I mean, the way that we deal with it is, like, first off, we have other people, or, like, you know, I have people that help me out with doing social media stuff, um, but I did it the very stubborn way where I was just like, well, I'm just going to make the thing that I want to see. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have to participate in the stuff that I don't like. <laughs> All right. Make the thing that you want to see. Let's end on that. Yeah. Um, thank you for to all of our panelists, and thank you to everyone who come out came out to uh, listen to us today. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you so much. And that is that. I hope you enjoyed that panel. I thought it was a lot of fun to be on and hear from people with, I think, pretty different and interesting perspectives. Uh, about these different communities and, and making games in different contexts. Um, so hopefully it is not too long until we're back with another episode of Idle Thumbs. Yep. Um, just stay tuned to this podcast feed for more. And uh, we'll see you soon. Gonna, yeah, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. There. Thanks I, I didn't. Bye. Oh, my God. <laughs>